This episode is not suitable for children to listen to or overhear. It may contain coarse language, adult themes and graphic descriptions. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program may contain the names of people who have died. A Perfect Storm, the true story of the Chamberlains. I think Azaria would have lasted a matter of minutes there were certain people within the Northern Territory Police who were determined to get her. People were saying to me, oh, you're going there to see that woman who killed a child. Bad things happen to good people. Episode 7, The Verdict. Hello, I'm John Buck. Almost a year to the day from when they heard Coroner Dennis Barrett's findings, which cleared them of any involvement in their daughter's death, the Chamberlains were again walking from a courtroom, through a media pack, to a waiting car. But this time they were on bail, and they'd have to return in a few months to face criminal charges. They didn't say a word. In two short years, the Chamberlains had lost their daughter to a dingo attack, been accused of sacrificing her, They've sat through two inquests, and all the while, they're innocent. And this saga is not over. It's barely started. Stuart Tipple became the Chamberlain's longest-serving lawyer. I received a call from a lady I'd never uh, heard of or spoken to before, who identified herself as a um, biologist working at Westmead Hospital. And she said, look, there are things that are being reported that don't add up. Something about the test results presented by forensic biologist Joy Cool didn't ring true for the late Patricia Fleming. If this Mrs Cool has carried out these tests, she would have work notes. And what I suggest you do is get a copy of those work notes so that we can have a look at it and see whether she's followed correct procedures. Tipple organised to meet with Mrs Cool and make a copy of her work notes. And I was standing next to her at the photocopier when she copied them, so I was quite sure that I had an accurate copy and watched very carefully as she copied them. They were the work notes that I later um, came back to Sydney with and they were like hier hieroglyphics to me. And I met with this Patricia uh, Fleming. What we found uh, was disturbing. In the samples that Joy Cool tested from the underdash spray, the work notes did not record that she had used proper controls. And if you don't use proper controls, then you can't rely on the test results because you, there are some things that will give a positive to everything. There'd been one critical piece of evidence in the second inquest that the Chamberlain's defence team had been unable to disprove, something called the underdash spray. It was a theory, supported by Cool's tests, that blood from Azaria Chamberlain's neck had sprayed up under the dashboard of the family car after her mother had decapitated her. And so really, uh, the test that she performed on the underdash spray should never have been introduced into evidence. And we were fairly confident that they would be able to be struck out at the trial. But we had to get an expert 
uh, that could be accepted as an expert by the court and convince a jury that what she, her test results were wrong. Um, and so my immediate job was to find an expert that could uh, look at her work and carry out um, their own tests. Despite the breakthrough, public sentiment was clearly against the Chamberlains and their legal team had just six months to find the facts to turn the case around. John Phillips, Andrew Kirkham and Peter Dean flew around Australia speaking to witnesses who may be able to bolster the case and disprove the falsehoods, such as claims of a sacrifice and postpartum depression. Stuart Tipple travelled to the UK to test Joy Cool's results with forensic biologist Dr Patrick Lincoln. He could not detect fetal haemoglobin uh, from the camera bag uh, or from the spray. He also uh, had found when he was testing the reagent used by Joy Cool that it would react against adult blood in one test. Uh, but he found that when he used the crossover electrophoresis test that um, he didn't get any reactions with uh, adult blood. And on that basis he said, well, I have to back Joy Cool up on, on those because that wasn't my experience. So it was a bit of a problem. Um, in some ways he was good for us, in other ways he, he backed up Joy Cool, which didn't make a lot of sense. It's fair to say that the Chamberlains had less money and resources than the Northern Territory Government, so they applied for legal aid to pay for the preparation. While they waited for the money, the Seventh-day Adventist Church loaned them money to pay for their defence. Fellow Adventists volunteered to help with everything from photocopying documents to researching forensics. Adventist Steve Garrett approached Barry Botcher, his professor from the University of Newcastle. Botcher was an expert on blood groups and body secretions used in forensic studies. He was the professor of biological sciences at Newcastle University, which is less than an hour away from where I live. And, you know, it's strange, you've done this worldwide search to find experts and you go around the world and then suddenly you find somebody within an hour's drive. I reached out to Professor Botcher for an interview. I knew how critical the blood evidence had been in the Chamberlain case and I hoped he could explain it to me. Barry caught the train to Sydney and I met him at Redfern Station. I found a handsome man in his 80s, well-dressed, wearing a blazer and holding an old briefcase filled with forensic documents. We started by talking about the day that Professor Botcher received Joy Cool's forensic work notes. As was my habit, I put them on the floor next to my desk so that I would pick them up to take them home. And when I got home that night before tea, I went to my study and opened up Mrs Cool's work notes. And within half an hour, I came out to my wife, Moira, and said to her, I don't know what's gone on, but these are not the results you would get if they were testing bloodstains from a baby, and specifically Azaria. 
What I noticed immediately was that in a number of tests, it appeared that the reaction given by the extract of Chamberlain stains had a higher concentration of fetal haemoglobin than fresh cord blood. And uh, that didn't make sense. And when I look at somebody else's work to see whether I would agree with it or not, look at the conclusions and ask the question, if those conclusions are correct, would I expect to get those results? And the answer in this case was of a de very definite no. Uh, he also pointed out a number of other errors and inconsistencies in, in Cool's evidence. What Cool had done was simply accepted that if she got a positive result to the test for foetal haemoglobin, that the blood had come from an infant. Before the trial, I had tested my own blood with the German test solution against foetal haemoglobin and my blood reacted. And I'm neither a foetus nor a newborn. What might have been happening was that there was some contaminant in the vehicle which was giving false positives. Botch's suspicions were right. It was discovered later, much later, that almost every surface in the Chamberlain's car was covered with copper oxide dust, common to any vehicle parked in the mining town of Mount Isa, the town where the Chamberlains had lived. Cool's tests had mistaken dust for blood with terrible consequences. In the meantime, the defence team had a witness to counter Mrs. Cool's test results. On a one-to-one -one basis, uh, he was just terrific. And uh, we thought, well, here we, he, we have the witness. The, this, this man's going to be the perfect foil, and, and who couldn't believe him? Stuart Tipple's run of good luck continued. So while we're preparing uh, for the trial, I get contacted uh, by uh, Mr. Weber, who was a friend of Mr. Chamberlain's and had a similar Tirana motor vehicle. Hearing about the underdash spray, he by chance had a look under his underdash and saw a spray pattern almost identical to the one that uh, had been found in the Chamberlain's car. So I arranged for that uh, to be cut out of his car and I sent it down to Melbourne to Andrew Kirkham and John Phillips, the QC, that we'd now brief for the trial. And they made arrangements to go to General Motors, take the, the, the plate with the spray pattern and see if General Motors could explain what the spray pattern was. If the spray pattern was something other than blood, it would be a major break for the defence. It would call into doubt the prosecution's gruesome story of Azaria's decapitation in the car. And then something happened that no one expected. Lindy indicated to me that um, she and Michael would really like to have another child. And when would the, the trial likely to be and, and would that be a problem? Well, at that time, we, we thought the trial was probably going to be in April. 
So I said, well, that's not a problem um, because, uh, you know, it's only a couple of months away. So what happened, of course, was that Lindy did fall pregnant and we then made an application to adjourn the case because April just was too soon. And we wanted it in August, but the Crown um, wanted to put it off uh, later, I think, to fit in with uh, Professor Cameron's um, travel itinerary. And so, sadly for Lindy, uh, by the time the trial came around, uh, everybody knew that she was pregnant. And of course, that became very much a talking point. You had those that said, well, she's got pregnant to, to garner sympathy. You had the other people saying, well, this is the ultimate test of faith, um, you know, that she uh, believes in her own innocence and, and why shouldn't she? But I think uh, on the balance of things, the, the pregnancy worked against her. The Chamberlains had been pushed off the nightly news by politics and a supermarket bomber. 28-year-old McCarty arrived at court under heavy police guard... Gregory McCarty, better known as the Woolworths bomber, was caught by police. By police, McCarty was returned to prison and will reappear for final sentence in three weeks. Paul White, 7 National News. So how did you find me? I meant to ask. Almost given up on finding you because it's easier to find someone like... Paul White's pretty hard to find. To yeah. Paul White had worked in radio around Australia but was reporting for independent radio news in London when Azaria Chamberlain disappeared and during the two inquests. He was now back in Sydney at Seven News. Paul White was chosen to cover the Chamberlain trial. Vincent Smith was news director. Vincent said, you don't know anything about the case. You're not part of the first and second inquests. Just go along and report it straight. When I got there, because I hadn't had any particular history, I found that there were all these factions. The guys from 9 and 10, the two TV guys, were convinced she was innocent. A lot of the press thought she was guilty. Malcolm Brown was not part of the media pack, and he didn't agree with his fellow newspaper colleagues on the Chamberlain's guilt. Before the trial, Michael asked me to go on a jog with him and his brother. Just during that run along the Todd River in the early hours of the morning and seeing Michael, everything was against this tiny little hapless couple. And I thought that if a state puts that much effort into prove someone's guilty, then you've got to look at the other side and see if they're innocent. Around this time, the defence lawyers Kirkham and Phillips received a response from GM about the spray on the bracket from the Chamberlain's car. Someone from General Motors rang them and said, we can't help you. And, and sadly, you know, that uh, uh, was something that happened a number of times where we approached people that we thought probably could and should have helped us and, and people just don't want to get involved sometimes or people don't know where to go. And, and looking back, um, you know, that, that was um, a, a big blow and, and as it turned out, um, I think more probably could and should have been done about it. Before we continue, I need to share something with you. Now, you'll probably remember last week that I reached out to the two main investigating officers on the Chamberlain case. And I have to be honest, I never expected a response of any kind. Hello, Nikki speaking. 
I just got a phone call from Graham Charlwood. I'll be recording that interview next week. And he wants to talk. In September 1982, the Chamberlain Supreme Court trial began in Darwin under the watch of Judge James Muirhead. He was well aware of the intense public interest in the case. He told the press that, quote, possibly the publicity has been without precedent in our lifetime, unquote. On the first day of the trial, I suppose you're always somewhat nervous. But in other ways, we were really keen to get it on. And we were confident uh, that there was going to be at least a reasonable doubt with the evidence that we had. Uh, and I think it was a great relief to the Chamberlains that suddenly they were going to be able to have their story put across. Uh, but of course, when you go into that town and you, you are confronted with uh, people wearing T-shirts, you, you realise that this is not going to be easy. There was a strong bias, I felt, uh, against the Chamberlains, but that was reflected in the entire Northern Territory community, in particular Darwin. On the very first day of the trial, there were people with T-shirts saying that Dingo is innocent, parading themselves outside the court. Today's proceedings began with a stern warning from the judge. It was aimed at onlookers outside the court, who Justice Muirhead referred to as fools. The first task was to select 12 jurors from a pool of around 165. 30 names were called before the jury was chosen. Nine men and three women were selected to make sense of perhaps the most complex murder trial yet held in Australia. How juries are seen is the art through the eyes of the person seeing them. And I think you have to look at juries objectively. Former Federal Circuit Court Judge Kenneth Raphael. My personal view, and it's only a personal view, is that juries generally get it right. They don't always get it right. But generally speaking, they do get it right, and it's a very great Good safeguard. Opening the Crown case, the senior prosecutor Ian Barker QC labelled the dingo story a fanciful lie. The Crown believed it could prove beyond reasonable doubt that Lindy Chamberlain murdered her child and then falsely asserted that the dead child had been taken from the tent by a dingo. It would maintain that the dingo story was a fanciful lie calculated to conceal the truth. The Crown would submit that the discovery of Azaria's blood in the family car destroyed the dingo attack explanation given by the Chamberlains. It added that Michael Chamberlain actively and knowingly assisted his wife to dispose of the child's body and to mislead the police about the circumstances of the child's disappearance. Journalist Paul White recalls the Crown prosecutor Ian Barker, QC. I've always been of the view that Ian Barker was able to engage the jury in a so much better way, both as a former Territorian and also he was a uh, more rough and tumble sort of character. He was very funny, very dry. I can remember the jury and the court and the media room falling about laughing at Barker's ridiculing of the dingo story. He made these 
grand sweeping comments about, oh, it must have been a very dexterous dingo. Witness Sally Shaw saw a different Barker. When you're presenting in front of a jury, it's a whole ball game. For instance, Barker tried to say things in a low, quiet voice when he was near me to try and get me look silly, you know, like, it's this showmanship that takes place in a courtroom. The whole evidence of, of, uh, of Sally was, was ignored almost from minute one. Barker was in his element. He went one stage, he said, well, you know and I know that a dingo wouldn't take the baby. Had it been in the, at the East Alligator River, uh, then it was alleged that a crocodile had taken the baby, we would believe that. But he was talking, speaking of them as a fellow Territorian. He had spent time in the Northern Territory. He'd been Solicitor General. He had been very closely associated with the Kakadu National Park. He spoke to them as fellow Territorians. I just think he was very, in the end, he was just doing a professional job. I did know a bit about it because my uncle was a QC in Melbourne at the time and he took a very dim view of, of the way the Crown was running its case. In that it was theatrical and, but on the other hand, Phillips and Kirkham were very, very straight and just not able to engage with the jury. That was my impression. After several hours of questioning this afternoon, Mr Barker put directly to Mrs Chamberlain that she had taken Azaria to the front seat of the family car and cut her daughter's throat. Mr Barker said a spray of Azaria's blood had gone up under the dashboard and that more blood... The way Barker conducts himself in the courtroom, does that become a factor? I, I don't think that actually that Barker was particularly theatrical. I, you know, it's a human trait to want to win. So although in strict legal terms it's, it shouldn't be about winning and losing for the Crown, it, all the Crown should be doing is presenting the case and letting the jury make up its mind, the fact is that because of people's vanity and people want to win a case, so they will adopt whatever tactics they believe are helpful to produce that result. We need to take a quick break and we'll return to a perfect storm in just a moment. Can we just talk about your witnesses and who was good and who was bad as a witness in the trial? Yes, witnesses uh, is always the worst thing for you as a defence counsel when your witnesses are being cross-examined. From the outset, it was clear that the dingo trial would be a battle between the scientists. I knew when I went into uh, went to Darwin, that there would be pressure put upon me. Professor Barry Botcher, a biologist from the University of Newcastle, disputed prosecution evidence that stains found in the Chamberlain's car were baby... I was so impressed from the moment that I met him. I thought, well, here's a man of really superior intelligence that came up with answers that nobody else uh, had, had come up with. And Botcher was a, a, a brilliant fellow. And he is delivering his style and the, the level, intellectual level at which he spoke went above the heads of the jury. And it was agreed uh, during my testimony that if it could be shown that the test solution would react with two compounds and not just with fetal haemoglobin, that you couldn't be sure that you had detected fetal haemoglobin and that the 
uh, stains were, as claimed, of Azaria's blood. I don't think there's any doubt that, in hindsight, the defence scientists were right, but broadly they were either not good witnesses or Barker tore them apart. Under searching cross-examination, Professor Botcher said although not a forensic biologist, he feels qualified to criticise evidence that blood found in the Chamberlain's car was from a baby under... I think part of it was that he knew how important he was to our case. And he just unfortunately wasn't a good witness. I considered that I had the scientific evidence that would show that Mrs Cool's results were not those that could have been given by Azaria and that um, I had the test solution reacting with two compounds, not just one. And sometimes that happens and you never really know what they're going to be like until you know, they're thrown into the cauldron. And you know, part of the problem is that he perspires profusely. There was uh, a lot of pressure and I felt it. He's in the box and he's perspiring and he's wiping his hands with his handkerchief and his brow. And in fact, after my first day in the witness box, I looked down at my shoes and found there were crystals of salt on the outside of my shoes. I had sweated so much in the witness box. While Butcher's witness performance was not what the defence had hoped for, you will hear an amazing story of discovery from Professor Butcher later in the podcast. After several hours of intricate forensic detail, trial judge Justice Muirhead told the jury they were not expected to evaluate the scientific evidence alone. Expert witnesses the defence got were, were not used to the courtroom environment and spoke in a rather uppity, rather intellectually arrogant way, which well, that was the impression, and that was an off-putting thing to the jury. The Crown got people who worked in forensic laboratories, and they, but they were expert witnesses. They were used to the courtroom environment. Mrs Cool illustrated her detailed evidence with slides, explaining the scientific evidence... Even though the true scientific evidence was there and the false scientific evidence there, the false scientific evidence was presented by someone who was presenting and putting on a show, whereas the dyed-in-the-wool scientist who really knew his business and knew what he was talking about. Um, had he been given a lecture in university, he might have had people listening to him, but giving that lecture in a courtroom, you know, the, I'm sure the jury just tuned out. There were some of the world's best forensic experts, allegedly, saying, oh, well, she's got, you know, there's fetal blood here and there's, there's scissors and cut marks and they were clearly um, very powerful. Professor Cameron told the court he believes Azaria was killed by an incised wound to the throat. He said there was evidence to suggest the cutting... Well, looking back on it, on it, I mean, to me, the scientific evidence should have gone before a board of scientists and then some decisions reached as to what um, should be presented. So I guess in a way, um, science failed in a way, didn't it? Mrs Cork was able to put things in a black and white uh, manner and was very emphatic. And 
everybody, when they saw her, was impressed with her evidence and was impressed to think, well, this, this lady knows what she's doing. And if she says there's fetal blood in the car, you better believe it. Ian Barker QC reinforced to the jury that Joy Cool had 22 positive results showing the blood of a child on evidence given to her by the Operation Ochre detectives. Dr Baxter, then senior forensic biologist of the New South Wales Health Commission, checked it and agreed 22 times. And Mr Culliford, deputy director of the Metropolitan Police Lab in London, also agreed 22 times. But Culliford did so without seeing the actual tests, which Cool had destroyed. Mrs Chamberlain was then called to the witness box to begin her evidence. As she was examining her daughter's blood-stained jumpsuit, two of the three women jurors began to weep. At this point, the jury foreman rose to his feet and Mrs Chamberlain also appeared distressed. Trial Judge Justice Muirhead adjourned the court immediately. Uh, Lindy, I think, was always a good witness. Uh, she's got a terrific memory uh, and uh, that detail uh, she was able to recall. Uh, so I think that anybody uh, hearing and seeing Lindy would find her uh, a believable witness. But the problem that she had was that by the time she came to give evidence, the jury had already heard the evidence about this underdash spray. So she couldn't come up with an explanation for that. And if you believe that, as there's no other reason why you shouldn't, you would have this graphic picture of this woman in the witness box who had actually sat in the front seat of the car, uh, slashed a baby's throat, uh, and put the body in a, in a camera bag. You know, the onus of proof was reversed. She had to prove the dingo had done it. I mean, that was clearly a problem. They called Michael as the last witness, and he was a terrible witness. So the last impression the jury had was of Michael Chamberlain. Barker just tore him apart. Mr Barker put it to Mr Chamberlain that his wife had lied to the police, the public, the coroner and to this jury. Mr Barker said, you well know that she's lying and that you too are lying. Uh, I think there's no doubt that the, the worst witness was Michael and that wasn't uh, a surprise because we'd, we'd seen that before. And the problem with Michael is I think he just tried so hard to make sure he was being fair and telling the truth. But uh, it just did not come across that well. And I think that uh, that was the reason why a lot of people uh, just didn't find him convincing in the, in, in the box. The emotional impact of the trial appears to be having an effect on seven months pregnant Mrs Lindy Chamberlain and her pastor husband Michael. After crying openly in court yesterday... Linda Scott covered the first weeks of the trial for seven news. Lindy at the inquest, I think, was a grieving mother. Um, her, eyes, her eyes give her away. Um, I believe that she was in a state of shock and she was trying to be steely and, and resolved and, and get through it. When I saw her at the trial, I was really shocked. Her eyes were dark, um, they were almost dead. It was ang there was anger burning in them. Uh, that's why some people, I think, interpreted her motives as, as bad motives, a murderer's eyes. Uh, that's what they looked like. They were just angry. And, and the fact that she was so pregnant in the trial, it was, and the outfit she wore, 
um, w without trying to sound bitchy about it. They were terrible. Her clothes were terrible. And every day she had a different outfit on and I think she was a keen sewer and I think she'd made them herself. And it was just, it was very, very sad, um, you know, just to see what she went through and, and, and the people sort of calling at her or calling her terrible names as she's going into court. That was, that was very, very bad. You know, Lindy was, the religion was considered weird. Lindy was considered, you know, very odd in terms of the interactions with people and journalists and you can't get away from the oddness all the time that, that made people think there was something else that clearly there wasn't. I didn't ever have a view that she was definitely guilty. Um, I certainly have a view now she was definitely innocent. She is incredibly loyal um, and I think that um, was one of the things that was tested to the extreme throughout. People watching it had formed the view that she, for whatever reason, was mentally unstable, that they are a bit weird, they had a strange religion, um, and there were a lot of important people giving evidence saying she did it. Um, all that the evidence pointed to her doing it. So while it's, you look back now and go, this is impossible to believe, on the day, in the trial, it wasn't impossible to believe. On the whole, the trial went very, very well. Uh, the only things that uh, I thought um, could have gone uh, better uh, was the, the fact that uh, the real truth about the underdash spray didn't come out. Joy Cole uh, had said something was fetal blood when it clearly wasn't. And, and can you explain to me why it didn't come out? Well, the true story didn't come out because Joy Cole produced this notation which saved those uh, test results uh, because on the face of her work notes she hadn't properly tested them and that evidence shouldn't have gone in. But when she was being cross-examined, she produced this notation um, at the back of her work notes, which I'd never seen before, uh, which said that she had tested them. I stood with her at the photocopy and saw every page photocopied. And so I saw every page placed down on the photocopy and I saw what was on the other page. But here you've got a Crown witness in the middle of a trial saying, oh, Yes, I did use the, the, the proper controls, and here's a notation, and I don't know whether that was photocopied. Is it your contention between the inquest and the trial that those documents have been altered? I think there's no doubt that that's what had happened. Mrs. Cool's forensic notes were examined by a Royal Commission almost four and a half years later. Cool had written, no reactions with animal antisera on the reverse side of the page, but scientists who looked at her test results in 1987 discovered that no animal antiserum had been used at all. Justice Morling described the entry on the reverse side of the work notes as unsatisfactory. I think we know what that's legal speak for. 
So not only had Cool mistaken copper oxide dust as blood, she had altered her work notes in between the second inquest and the trial so that they supported the Crown's case. But in late October 1982, the Chamberlain jury did not know that, and the defence chose not to tell them. You've got two choices. You either have to accept it, as we did, or you have to say, hold on, you're lying. And you are not going to do that in the middle of a trial, because here you're calling someone a liar who's been brought into it as an expert witness. Um, you know, the risk, you know, the, the Crown will be able to say the defence is so desperate that they've accused this woman of lying and fabricating evidence. The eyewitness testimony of Sally Shaw and other campers had been swept aside. And not only that, where were the voices of the Indigenous trackers? Barbara Winmarty, Daisy Walkabout, Kitty Collins, Anue Minion Terry. Coroner Barrett had heard from them through their informal spokesperson, Nipper Winmarty, but none of their evidence was heard by the trial jury. And that's because what they'd seen, like Sally Shaw, contradicted the Crown's case. I guess when it came to the evidence with the Indigenous people that were involved, to me, I don't think they were given enough credence. It was as though they were treated as second-class citizens, that they, were, they weren't um, valued. Um, I mean, they were there. Um, from what I heard, they had the obvious tracking skills, the people that were involved. So why didn't their evidence carry any weight? But then at that stage, when we got to the trial, they weren't giving weight to anyone's evidence who was actually there on the spot when it happened. Um, the, you know, the, the West's in the tent next door, um, Murray Haby, who found the prints up on the hill and the imprint of the, the jumpsuit. I mean, all that evidence just seemed to be negligent, as though it didn't count. It got overrun by the scientific, supposed um, scientific evidence. I mean, a lot of it turned out to be crap, but at that stage, um, people were believing all the, the stuff that was coming forth, yeah. The trial had run for 33 days. Justice Muirhead thanked the jury for their work and they retired to consider a verdict. Most assumed the process would take days, not hours. The view at the time was that she would be acquitted. I was sitting at a long table with Barker and they said the message from the court was that there's a verdict. The jury returned after just six hours. And you'll hear the unanimous verdict in the next episode. In the meantime, I wanted to remind you that Azaria Chamberlain's matinee jacket is still missing and no one is searching for it. Nor are they looking for the person or persons unknown that Coroner Barrett believed disposed of the missing baby's body. Since we created the last episode, I've made contact with Detective Superintendent Neil Plum. We spoke briefly and he does not want to tell his side of the story and of course, I respect that. 
I'm still trying to make contact with Detective Sergeant Graham Charwood, who led the investigation for the Northern Territory Police. If you subscribe now, you'll get an alert the moment we release the next show. I'd like to say thanks to Nikki, Simon and Stephen, who helped create this episode, and a shout-out to Ash, Bill and Nancy. And thanks to you for listening.